Today's guest is Rebecca Costa. Now, Rebecca Costa is a fascinating person. She's an American sociobiologist and futurist. She's also the preeminent global expert on the subject of fast adaptation and recipient of the Edward O. Wilson Biodiversity Technology Award. Now, this is a divergence from her original career, where she was the founder and CEO of a large technology marketing firm in California, and her clients included companies such as Hewlett-Packard, Apple Computer, Oracle, Siebel Systems, General Electric, 3M, and more. After she retired at the zenith of her career there, she spent six years researching and writing the international bestseller, The Watchman's Rattle, A Radical New Theory of Collapse, and her follow-on book titled On the Verge was published in 2017. This is a really fun, fascinating interview with quite a striking mind. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll bring you Rebecca Costa. I'm Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic informal conversations with amazing people. Hey, thanks so much for coming on, Rebecca. Well, thank you for having me. Now, you were sort of all over the place. You had literally one major career, then you stopped that one and started another. How did that all come about? Well, I don't know that I had any planned career in mind at all. You know, I... um I had a certain skill set, and uh, over a period of time, uh, I was offered jobs, and I took the jobs and tried to rise to the occasion. Um, I was very fortunate in that my parents happened to land in what was to become Silicon Valley. Of course, they didn't know that, but you know, so much of what happens in your career is chance. That is so true. Now, I believe you have two degrees both in biology and sociology. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. My final year in college, I came across a book by the uh, greatest naturalist in the world, uh, Dr. Edward O. Wilson, E.O. Wilson out of Harvard University uh, on sociobiology. And of course, in those days, you didn't have hybrid degrees. So I immediately uh, was so excited about the book. I went to the uh, dean and said, I'd like to have a degree in sociobiology. And he said, one book does not a degree make. We'll give you a degree in sociology and biology. Uh, and that, of course, is not sociobiology, but uh, that was the best they could do for me at the University of California. Well, on that note, what exactly is sociobiology? Uh, a sociobiologist looks at trends and uh, social behavior in terms of man's evolutionary inheritance. So there are certain things that we do, ways that we organize our government, uh, our families, uh, and certain behaviors that, that we can trace back to the origins of humankind. So while it's not the same, it does correlate slightly with evolutionary psychology? A little bit. It's a little bit evolutionary psychology, but we're less interested in the individual as we are in social movement. So more macro than micro. Exactly. Now, you were also a futurist. Is that another way of saying you take what has happened in the past and try to predict the future? That's exactly right. Since my parents landed in Silicon Valley, much of my career was with early startups the earliest days of Intel, Apple Computer, Oracle Corporation, 
Uh, and then, of course, later, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. So I've got technology in my DNA. And when you know the first 1,000 numbers, it's not that difficult to predict what 1,001 is going to be. And so I don't like the title futurist, but somehow because I have an ability to look at the past, look at the present, and then be able to uh, connect these dots and be able to predict with considerable accuracy what the next future trend will be. Uh, they began calling me a futurist, but I, I can promise you I have no crystal ball. <laughs> Everything was just based on logic and history. So it's just predictive behavior then. Exactly. Now, I want to get back to things, but I want to get my timeline straight from what I understand. You started in Silicon Valley in the 1970s during the rise of like Steve Jobs. And I can never get the names right. Is it Bill Noyce? Yeah, Bob Noyce was coming into fruition. Larry Ellison. You know, none of these people, I, I knew them as simply uh Mavericks, but I I didn't know they were going to be historically significant. Um, uh, at the time, we were going through a renaissance, if you will, of uh, everything from networking, the internet, uh, personal computing, and later cell phones. Uh, you know, I, I mean, so the software industry didn't work; it didn't exist prior to that. Uh, let alone, uh, you know, chips that were going and sensors, low cost sensors that were going to be collecting data like nobody's business. We didn't really have a clear vision of how this was all going to change the way that we live our daily lives. Yeah, I think I read somewhere, uh, it might have been Malcolm Gladwell, that Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and I believe it's Scott McNeely, they were all born within like 18 months of each other. Yes, that's right. And I was born in that generation as well and happened to be, you know, when I got out of college, that's where the jobs were and that's where my parents had settled. And so, you know, there were there was a lot of serendipity to my career. Uh, and I was very fortunate in that regard. And I wanted to explore your path and how you went into marketing and wound up um, creating a marketing agency. Did that help serve your love of data? Well, it's an interesting story. Uh, when I got back to, you know, I, I graduated uh, college and I drove my old beat up uh, VW bug home. And uh, the next morning I woke up and my dad was sitting with a newspaper and he was going through the classified ads. And he said, you know, there's no jobs for sociobiologists. He said, I think you've gone wrong. I mean, there's dental assistants, accountants, bookkeepers. <laughs> there's a lot of jobs. And in those days, you looked in the newspaper in the classical section for jobs. And I said, yeah. And he says, what's your plan here? Because uh, if you think you're going to stay home, I got I got a different plan for you. So my dad was, uh, you know, he was a very... Um, uh, I don't know if he came from a working class family and he believed you should get out of college and uh, you should find a job. So uh, I went and I started applying. And of course, everything was uh, brand new technology companies and they were hiring anybody who could spell their name, you know, for assembly line jobs and so on and so forth. And I happened to get a HR person uh, for a, a small CAD CAM startup. Nobody even knew what CAD CAM was in those days. It was a small CAD CAM startup. And she said, well, 
I don't know what a sociobiologist is, but now that you've explained it to me, it seems to me that you would be good at uh, figuring out how to get people to buy things. <laughs> you understand human behavior. And I said, well, I, I understand something about human behavior. And she said, I think you understand motives and what people would be interested in. She said, I'm going to stick you in marketing as a technical writer. And of course, when I was in college, I had had a number of writing assignments uh, that that an ad agency had given me. And so I figured, well, yeah, I could I could write, you know, and I could probably figure my way out. So my first job was as a tech writer for a small CAD CAM startup, which eventually became very large, was purchased by United Telecom and later by General Electric. At what point did you decide to hang out your own shingle and start your own agency? Well, at the time that the General Electric bought the company, uh, I was shipped to Fairfield, Connecticut and put into the fast, you know, executive program and tracked. And uh, pretty much the people that I was working with were at least 30 years older than me. <laughs> and they were they had stodgy ideas. And it was my first encounter with what I call institutional resistance. Uh, and I could see that GE was in no way going to make it in the computing industry because I came out of Silicon Valley's culture and I knew how people like Scott McNeely and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs thought and how they behaved and the cultures that were required to move progress much faster. And uh, and so I walked away from becoming one of the v youngest vice presidents in General Electric history, I walked away from that career and joined the oldest startup in Silicon Valley. It was a startup that had been around for 11 years called Omex, and they were trying to perfect and develop the first optical storage archival system. And I became fascinated with how we were going to store and analyze all this data that we were producing at an accelerating rate. And so after talking it over with my dad, my dad said, well, here's the good news. If you join the oldest startup in Silicon Valley, which has failed for over a decade um, and you fail to turn it around, no one can blame you. And if you rescue the company, you're a hero and you can write your own ticket anywhere. So he said, just go for it. And so I did. And what happened? I didn't turn it around. <laughs> it failed. <laughs> well, most great CEOs have learned from failure. I mean, Steve Jobs is probably the greatest example of how he was forced out of Apple and kind of wandered the wilderness and came in with Nest. And then Next was really a failing company. He bought Pixar, but he didn't even buy them for the animation. It was almost an accident that they got so big. Well, uh, people forget that at one time Apple had an entire software company called Claris. That's right. And that tanked. There, Apple's had a ton of failures, you know, and I have too. I, I, I have to say my career has been, and these are not small failures. You know, I, 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 I'm talking epic failures. I've had epic failures and epic successes. And, you know, and I, people look at me and think that I take a lot of risks, but they're calculated risks. And I, I guess I, uh, one attribute I could tell you that I, I know I have is that I get over my failures pretty fast. 
I don't dwell on You're them. always moving, I'm guessing. Well, in a way, I mean, I try to extract some lesson from it because I don't like to repeat the failure. Uh, but it turns out no two failures are exactly alike. So uh, your best option in life, since you can't avoid failure, is to fail fast and move on. Doesn't that follow the pattern? I think I read someplace that venture funds only actually succeed like 15% of the time or some low number. That's right. In many times, you know, in the current environment where your decisions are highly complex, there's way too many variables and you can't assess all of them in a timely fashion in order to make a rational decision. So you pick out a few key variables that matter to you, but your odds of, of making a good decision are, grow worse as the, those decisions grow more complex. My definition of complexity is there's more wrong options than there are right ones, and the number of wrong ones are exponentially uh, accelerating and growing. So the fact is, is that you can look at uh, company uh, models like the venture capital model where uh, venture capitalists you know only maybe 10% or 15% of the companies they invest in succeed either by being acquired or going out into the public market and so people you know all the venture capitalists i know they're very wealthy and very successful and you wonder how can they succeed when they're actually only making the correct decision 10 or 15 percent of the time. And that's because the decisions, the, the good decisions they make, the wins far and above dwarf the the uh, failure. It's not that different than the previous recording industry model, is it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, you had a lot more failures than you had successes, but those successes were so big that, you know, you didn't worry about it. Wow, that's a crazy, heady kind of world. I can only imagine it. Now, I've noticed on your book, you have some pretty heavy-hitting names for blurbs. And there are quotes about you from just about everyone. John Scully comes to mind, for one. And that's an obvious apple tie there. Does that relationship go back to your days with the marketing agency? Well, there's a lot of people that have been following my work that I was not aware of, the Richard Branson's and Senator Mitchell and and uh, John Scully and, and Jim Lair and Ed Wilson, in, as, as a matter of fact, uh, became a mentor, a great mentor of mine. I've been very, very fortunate to have a, a laying on of hands of my work. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm. I don't mean to sound falsely humble here, but, you know, I, 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 I just I, I'm so undeserving of the credit and the accolades that I have uh, received. I'm I'm constantly struggling with that because um, the more I learn, the more I think I don't know. <laughs> That's actually true. Isn't that the Dunning-Kruger effect? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So when people are uh, kind enough to elevate my work and say what such wonderful things about it, I, I uh, personally, I feel a little embarrassed because I, I feel I'm constantly looking at data and feeling as though there's there's greater insights there that I haven't gotten to yet. How exactly did you capture their notice? Usually you can kind of trace these things back to one incident or referral or something else. I think it's word of mouth, truly. It's just truly word of mouth. People get a hold of 
essays or research I've done or blogs I've written, uh, my books. You know, I the first book that I wrote was The Watchman's Rattle. And, uh, you know, at the time, it was funny because I had an interview with my publisher, which was Vanguard Press in New York City. And they said, well, how many copies do you think of this book you'll sell? And my answer was, I'm pretty sure members of my family will buy it. <laughs> I, I didn't I had no concept because I thought a book that uses science and human evolution to explain some of the consternation that we face today, uh, probably there wasn't going to be a big market for it. And I was I was wrong. It was such a dark horse of a book, but it wound up going to 27 countries and becoming a bestseller. And even today, it's in the top uh, 1% of Amazon sales 10 years later. Well, it's a hell of a name. And that alone had to help. I mean, it just feels so dark <laughs> and scary. And watching your videos and things, well, it's not always a cheerful shall we say, prediction? Well, no, because as, you know, I, in the Watchman's Rattle, I went back through the Mayan civilization, the Romans, the Khmer, the Ming and em Egyptian empires to try to see if there was some behavior that the society was engaged in that prior to their collapse, I wasn't interested in the actual cataclysmic event, which tipped the society into chaos, because historians have pretty much covered that. But I was wondering if there was anything else that was going on that that was a precursor. You know, were they behaving in some way that allowed that cataclysmic event to cause the society to collapse? And I discovered there were several steps that were very similar in each of the collapses of each of those societies. And the first one was that the information that the person on the street needed to be able to understand to make rational decisions became very, very complex. And they they no longer could could distinguish a fact from an unproven belief. And then the second stage is as there became mass confusion between what was an empirical fact and an unproven belief or an opinion. Um, uh, the leaders became confused and uh, public policy started to become highly based on mostly opinion and unproven beliefs and became irrational. And then once public policy became irrational, it was just a matter of time that some event was going to cause them to collapse. So one way to look at it is there's two clocks, right? There's there's the clock at which your biological evolution is occurring. And that is that's very slow, right? You get in your car and you no longer have enough appendages to run your nav system, hold on to the steering wheel, drink your coffee, plug in your iPhone. You need more hands and fingers than you have. And you're not going to get any of those anytime soon. So we have to make laws that say, hey, you can't, you know, text and drive a two ton vehicle at the same time, you moron, you know, um, and uh and and the second clock is the pace at which social evolution moves and it begins to accelerate and eventually societies become so complex they don't know what's going on anymore 
and neither do the citizenry. Sure, and that's becoming more and more apparent all the time. One thing that pops into my head is when you talk about the cognitive threshold, I think you mean however much the mind is capable of tracking. The amount of complexity the brain can actually physically handle. Exactly, and that makes me think of things like dyslexia and its place in the evolutionary cycle. I mean, writing is actually new, um, relatively speaking to man. Yes, it is. It's very, it's a recent phenomena, but there are a lot of um, things like dyslexia or even ADD as an example. I've had a lot of people come up to me during my speeches and say, do you, what do you think about the, the surge in autism or in ADD? And, and I said, well, it's too early to tell. We don't know if that's a response to an environmental change of, of overload, overload of stimulation, overload of complexity, that the brain is effectively either shutting down or going trying to go faster. I think of autism and ADD as being similar things on a spectrum. One side, the brain's trying to go quicker and jump from thing to thing to thing. And the other, the brain is removing itself from stimulation. You know, it's interesting. There was a scientist, I don't recall his name, but he was drawing a parallel between autism and psychopathy and sociopathy. Well, we just don't know. It's, you know, these things take millions of years to evolve. And we don't, you know, people say, well, you know, autism is an exception, but we don't know it's not the cusp of how humans are evolving. Be able to handle overstimulation, it makes perfect sense. And we are an overstimulated society. And I think there's always an evolutionary reason that these things or conditions exist. That's correct. But we seem to, it's very interesting that we, we talk about everything in society. We talk about politics and governance, how that affects people and how economics, you know, affects people and how drugs affect people. And we, we talk about all these things. But we, we never seem to add evolution in there, you know, as though we can do everything. And our bodies haven't substantially changed in millions of years. Yeah, we're hunter-gatherers. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Our current state of development was finalized, what, about 100,000 years ago? That's right. I mean, we haven't had any major development for hundreds of thousands of years, and, and it goes rather slow. And so society itself can change any way it wants to, and progress can accelerate. But we're trapped in this biological spacesuit that fundamentally can only do so much. And the example that I frequently use is... Um, uh, you know, credit default swaps on Wall Street. Um, no matter how many times economists explained to me how that those worked, I couldn't understand them. And I'm I'm a pretty smart scientist, but I I could not understand them. And I said, you know, eventually when these social systems collapse, what do you think we'll be doing? We'll be bartering in the street. You'll have some eggs and off some carrots and. We'll bicker with each other in the street until we both think we got the better deal, and then we'll trade and both go home. That's what our brains can handle today. They can't handle, you know, the way that currencies are marketed and exchanged. And so we're very vulnerable for a unilateral economic collapse because it's too complicated, so much so that even the experts can't explain it to one another. Yeah, one I always struggle with is shorting the market. 
I sort of get it, but I, well, I really don't. Uh, it's just manipulation. I mean, there should be no such thing as shorting, right? Uh, or buying futures, because when you think about it, if you and I really wanted to do something, do a maniacal scheme, we would work night and day to issue some negative public relations press about a company and we would short their stock, meaning that the stock would go down and we would profit from that. And so now with Facebook and Twitter, it's you don't have to work very hard to spread a rumor, do you? <laughs> no, not really. And they'll even help you. And, and that's all it takes to short a stock successfully, by the way. For anybody listening, if you're successful at, at spreading a rumor, the value of the stock will go down and you'll become a millionaire. On that note, spreading rumors and everything, there is a great book by Ryan Holiday called Trust Me, I'm Lying. It's a must read. <laughs> I haven't heard it, but I love the title. It's one of the best books I've ever read about market manipulation. He really goes into great detail. He used to work for American Apparel and Tucker Max, and he would run viral campaigns secretly that would actually get terrible press, but yes. huge market share. And his maneuvering was brilliant. He figured out how to game the system, like all the reporters for the New York Times who do they read and who do they follow? He would then in turn find out who they followed and insert things into the blogs, which would get picked up and his message would start growing from there. Or he would come up with a press release that was provocative and turn an ad campaign into a story. We, we definitely live in predatory times. You know, you know um, that's what my second book was all about on the verge was about the fact that we have now collected so much data and are collecting it every, you know, Zeta second of every minute that we're able now to put, you know, use artificial intelligence to connect all these dots and to see trends and patterns that we could never see before. And that's allowed people who have artificial intelligence tools and pre and sophisticated predictive algorithms to predict what you will do. Yes, I wanted to cover that because I've noticed a theme running through your works that you seem to be very concerned about the haves and have nots. And I have a theory, and I'm sure I'm not alone, but essentially it is that the Pareto principle is running amok. And I fear we are ultimately going to be consumed by the inequality over time because it is a fractal. Yes, it's 2080, but then of that 20, there's another 2080, and of that 20, another 2080, and down the line. And you see a real magnifying effect of the rich. Well, they have an advantage. They have an advantage in that they know more about what's going to happen than the person on the street. I'll give you an example. I was contacted by a very, very wealthy, many times over billionaire who owns an island in the uh, South Pacific. And uh, I got this random phone call and uh, I I'd never heard of him before. He's not a famous person. He's, he's a recluse. And he said, I'd like to send a jet out and have you come out and speak with me. 
And I thought that this was a ruse of some type, but it turned out it wasn't. And I went to see him and he had a, a, a war room that I walked into and one entire wall, it was almost like a James Bond villain type of wall. Had, now just imagine all these little pictures of oil wells everywhere in the world. And underneath each oil well was a ticker, kind of a ticker symbol. And it was showing him in real time exactly how much oil was being pumped by every well in the world. I can believe it. And 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 I looked at that and I said, I'm it's all it's over. The stock market is over. You have people that know how every uh, reserve is being depleted and how much production is going into the market. And once you know that, you know what what's going to happen to oil prices. Barring a political event where, uh, you know, a, a, a oil tanker way in the uh, seas gets blocked, you know, or you have a catastrophic environmental uh, issue, um, you, you, this guy knows what oil is going to do. So there's no point in me ever trading in the commodity market. And this is where, where I think the predatory aspect of data begins to come in. Those who have the best predictive algorithms, the best data, are able to predict in advance what's going to occur in the future and then posture themselves properly. And the rest of us are victims. Well, it gets even deeper than that, too. And you've brought this up before. We have corporatism. Not only can large corporations get around tax laws and muscle smaller businesses around by holding them forever in court, but also they have lobbyists to help get laws that they write in. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, I, I worked for General Electric and they had buildings full of the best accountants in, in the world and, uh, and tax lawyers who would comb through every legal means not to pay taxes and year after year GE did not pay any taxes. They didn't pay any, zero, just like Amazon. Uh, and and so, you know, if you look at the small mom and pop on on uh, Main Street, they're paying the maximum tax, whereas an Amazon pays zero. Now, you automatically know that can't be right. But Amazon is not breaking the law. That's the part we have to understand. They did nothing wrong. And in fact, it, in fact, they did the right thing because their number one responsibility is their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to give the highest return possible. So they actually, from a business ethics standpoint, also did the ethical thing. Well, that's how complex it gets. Because they are literally breaking the law if they don't try to dodge. That's correct. If they don't try to maximize profits, they are breaking the the ethics laws that say that you must do everything within your power to return the maximum uh, investment to your shareholders. So where or how do we fix this? Because we have a situation where you have the corporatism. We have Congress who has abdicated their responsibility. We have an executive branch with too much power and a judicial branch out of hand. I think that what will happen, yeah, it's 50, it's 50, 50. I think in the hands of humans, we got no chance. 
But in the hands of artificial intelligence, which simply, you know, if you think about it, AI is coming into our homes. A lot of us have Alexa units. Uh, if we don't have Alexa units, we use a navigation system inside our cars. Slowly but surely, the information is becoming democratized and more and more of us are having availability of AI-based knowledge that has no bias, is not trying to manipulate us. Alexa is not trying to manipulate you when you call, when you say, hey, Alexa, you know, uh, you know, tell me how many uh, pounds of butter, you know, how many cups is eight pounds of butter? I was baking the other day and, you know, I asked Alexa, the recipe happened to be in pounds. And I said, hey, convert it into to cups. Alexa didn't come back and say, hey, eight pounds of butter is actually, you know, 14 cups of, of butter. And by the way, the best butter happens to be Lando Lakes. <laughs> but at the same time, if you say, hey, I'd like to buy a pound of butter or something like that, it's not going to say, oh, sure, go down to Safeway or Food Lion or whatever your grocery store happens to be. So there is definitely a control factor there. It's going to send you to Amazon. There's a controlling factor, but I feel it's pretty minimal right now. Right now, we have a chance, a chance that artificial intelligence will make it, will arm the person on the street with a fighting chance that they have the same data that uh, that the wealthy have. Yeah, on that note, it's very interesting because I feel that the Internet in some ways has been very democratizing, but at the same time, no. Early on, it was very democratic, but I feel like over time, the network effect is just putting in the power players who in turn are shaping the information. For example, do you think every YouTube video is given equal weight? No, no. And do you think that Facebook, for example, has any particular political leanings or desires? Uh, of course, I think they do. And I think that the large players uh, in the Internet are manipulative. And that is one thing that I'm quite worried about. And let me go further with that. With the AI or algorithms being written... Now, some of it is our own stupid cognitive biases going, ooh, yeah, I'm sure they did that. Click, like, oh, they're an idiot. Click, like. And thus we train the algorithm to respond to our own stupid, dark desires and take us down a horrible path. Well, again, again, that, that's the, that, those would be humans that would be manipulating AI. AI in and of itself will filter that out. We hope, but you can only filter out what you put well, in. Because artificial intelligence, you can say, listen, you know, I don't want you to just give Rebecca the, the conversion from pounds to cups. I want you to insert something about Lando Lakes. And AI will reject that and go, that wasn't the question. Okay, but isn't it fair to say garbage in, garbage out? I mean, AI or rather machine learning algorithms work only with whatever data is available. Yeah. And if the data is corrupt, it's corrupt. It's not like a, it's going to just go, ooh, I'm putting it through the washing machine. Except for, except for the data set is so large that the biases are neutralized, if that makes any sense. Well, I, I don't know. At a certain point, searching everything that's available on the Internet, you've got to understand that literally in picoseconds, you can search everything that's available on the Internet and the manipulations right now are 
neutralized as a result of that because there's people remember there's for every force there's an anti-force for Atlanta Lakes is trying to get you to buy their butter but you know over here is Tillamook saying well we want you to buy our butter and then there's 50 other companies that are going we want we want to sell our butter so uh, when AI comes back, it says, yeah, there's a lot of people selling butter, but you only asked me convert pounds to cups. So that's all I'm giving you. I got you. that, but I also think about Microsoft who released their AI bot who was going to be a social media member, but wound up being a Nazi after like two days and he had to shut it down. It, it can happen. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, they're, you know, look, you know, from a, uh, previous conversations that I have had, uh, that there's a dark side to all new technology. Uh, I The example I like to give people is when Charles Lindbergh was able to, you know, fly across the Atlantic, uh, he won a lot of peace prizes because it was believed if you could shuttle diplomats across oceans and they could meet face to face, it would probably broker a lot of peace and prevent a lot of wars. We weren't thinking at that time that those planes would be used to carry bombs across the ocean. And we weren't thinking that the planes would become bombs themselves. I mean, same with the internet. We weren't, at the time the internet came into fruition, nobody was thinking identity theft or cyber warfare or shutting down an entire, you know, electrical grid. That wasn't even- Well, they were thinking porn. (laughs) They were thinking porn from day one. Well, we, we were- no, the, the, the thing is, is that every time we make progress and there's a leap in progress, there's a dark side to it. We just don't get out ahead of it. Um, you know, Guy Kawasaki talks about this a lot. He says, you know, uh, in, in hospitals, everybody knows what a postmortem is, right? The patient dies and then you cut them open, you do a lot of tests and you want to know why they died. But it's not very helpful because they're dead. You're not going to bring them back once you discover what they died from. So he, he always says, you know, it's so much more effective to use our frontal cortex of our brain and do a pre-mortem to ask the question, if the patient were to die, what would they die from? It's instructive, right? And every time we make a, make a, a leap in progress, we need to say, look, if something could go wrong with this, what would it be? And then begin to start to put some fencing around it. Oh, there we go. So we agree then that a little paranoia is actually healthy? A lot of, a lot of paranoia because there's no such thing as progress without a dark side. It's just that we are reactive. We're, we're a very reactive society. And yet of all the species that walk the planet today, uh, human beings have the greatest ability to do thought experiments about future consequences and then forge some action in the present to avoid a danger or to, at the very least, minimize a danger. But we don't seem to want to. This is a very unnatural thing. We're not using the talents that we that Mother Nature crafted. It's very odd. <laughs> mm, yeah, I guess that's the hedonic treadmill that you had discussed before but a lot of it is kind of a weird state like facebook other social media etc they're practically like opium they are designed to be addictive and they are extremely addictive using game theory and things like that and this has some far-reaching effects 
for example, a lot of young people aren't having sex anymore and thus not having children and shrinking the population. Some people might like that. There could be an argument for a benefit there. But but as an example, when I was 16 years old, the most important thing in the world to me was a driver's license. Yes. And I'm sure it was the same for you. Yes, it was. Well, now a lot of kids don't care. A lot of them, if they need to go anywhere... They'll just have their parents take them. And a lot of times they don't even go because, well, they could talk to their friends on Facebook and never even leave the house. And this separation from other people is concerning, not to mention, for example, the porn, which is so clinical that the real thing is kind of gross for them. Well, I I actually have a theory about why people are not as sexual as they used to be and and partially while why they're sort of withdrawing from one another. Um, and uh, it has it had to do with a, a book that came out very, very long time ago. You enjoy this book called Anatomy of Love. And it was a cultural anthropologist. Her name escapes me right now, but uh, she's a cultural anthropologist. And she decided to observe humans like tribes in the Amazon and then high society in England to see if there were any. Uh, what were the attributes and behaviors that humans engaged in for mating? I mean, Helen we, Fisher. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's it. And and uh, and Fisher decided, you know what? We observe how animals mate. Why can't we observe how humans mate? And she was able to identify. I think it was maybe six or seven uh, exact steps. So, but here's the thing: the very first one required for mating is that you walk into a room and maybe you see somebody you're sort of interested in and you do something to to call attention to yourself. You talk loud, you laugh a little loud, you move a chair, you make some noise to get their attention. And then the second thing that happens is that there's this thing called the gaze. You look at each other just a few seconds longer than you look at anyone else. And nowadays... What's everybody gazing at? Their phones. Their Their phones, their screens. They're not looking at each other. And so we've interrupted this this, uh, making a sound, this... uh, this gaze, this in, this locking gaze between, we've interrupted the mating cycles of humans. And then after the gaze, the person will look back. You'll engage in the gaze two or three times, which is a tacit permission to approach. And then you, usually the male will approach in those days. Now it could maybe be a little bit different, but the male would approach and then he would find a very innocent way to break the physical boundary, like reach for a glass and brush against the woman's shoulder, but somehow make physical contact. And if the woman didn't flinch or pull away, then it was sort of uh, tacit permission to keep going. So there were all these stages, but now technology has interrupted human mating. Well, yeah, first they have to be in the same location. We're not in the same location. We don't draw attention to ourselves. We don't unlock in the gaze. We don't ba- break physical boundary with each other. We're trying to do some weird mating electronically over Facebook or Twitter and FaceTime. It's, it's very weird. Um, but then I, you know, I sound like an old person. I, I don't really understand how people get together anymore. Well, the short answer is they kind of don't. 
Yeah, well, that's not going to do well for our species. <laughs> well, I don't know that that's going to improve. I don't think it will. I think it's going to grow much worse. We're going to see population levels reverse. And I don't know how much we're going to start depending on technology. For example, how many women are going to say, I just want a child, not a male? Well, that's happening. The, uh, that's happening right now with birth rates to single mothers. Exactly. But I'm saying you don't even need to have the male involved. There's in vitro many, many ways. Yes, but you got to remember, we're trapped in this very prehistoric spacesuit. So while all these technological changes occur, they don't necessarily make us happier. All of the self-reported happiness, you know, we take surveys of the happiest countries in the world and so on and so forth. And right at the bottom, the very bottom of the list is single parents. They're not happy. They believe having a child will make them happier. But in reality, in day-to-day life, they are not happy. Oh, I imagine not. And consider this, where are suicide rates the highest? Well, right now, I you know, the suicide, the highest suicide rate, uh, and this just came out in the last week, has now been Native American women. Oh, really? Yeah, that's that's just uh, it. It's a uh, disgusting number, um, and and of course the growth in suicide uh, on an international basis, not just talking about the United States. Suicides are up, and that should be no uh, by about. I think it's 28, 29% over the last decade. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pandemic problem that's going on right now, but that shouldn't surprise us because look at the growth in antidepressants. One out of eight people in the United States need an antidepressant to get through the day right now. There are some who might argue against whether they need that. Well, I know, but regardless of how you feel, there's some problem enough that that they're getting prescribed antidepressants. And the largest growth is under the age of 20. So, So you've got a whole younger generation that's very depressed, right? And then you've got suicide rates climbing, and so, you know, you, we have we're kind of like we're, we're confused about what makes this organism, this, you know, three million year old organism, what makes it happy? And it isn't and it isn't technology and it's not even and it's not money. Most people say, well, money would make me happy. Well, we've done studies on that and over one hundred and fifty thousand a year in the U.S., you start to hit a point of diminishing returns. Yeah, well, sure. It it does help if you're somebody's in desperate need of money. But once you get beyond the point where the bills are paid, it matters less. It, it's not going to get you what you think it's going to get you. And so there's there's a you know there's a disconnect between what we think will make us feel fulfilled and happy and and life meaningful and optimistic and cheerful and rewarding what those things are and then what we're pursuing day in and day out are really not in alignment right now. And so therefore we have a depressed society and we have a suicidal society and people are wondering about these mass shooters. You know, I wrote an article, I don't know, I'm going to say like five or six years ago for USA Today. And I said, it's it, it, it before the violence, before they pick up a gun, and start these these ter- tremendous tragedies, they lose the will to live. 
it's it's effectively an act of suicide. But it's weird. There's actually two types of um, spree killers. I had a guest on, Dr. Robert King, out of Cork, Ireland. Mm-hmm. And he's done some studies on the subject. And there are two types of these spree killers. You have the young killers, like uh, James Holmes, the one who shot up the uh, theater in Aurora. Yes. And then you have the uh, Vegas shooter, I believe, Stephen Paddock's. And what Dr. King is discovering is that the young spree killer type will often live. Parkland is another example. And the reason for this is in their own sick way, they are actually raising their status. There are even groupies, um, hybristophiles, who gather around and they dye their hair pink and call themselves homies. Mm -hmm. And the other end, you have the men who are usually past their child rearing years on the decline overall in life. And they tend to be the suicidal ones who will take themselves out. Yes. I didn't know if you had ever explored this. No, I, I haven't explored the, the split that you point that you point out. It makes perfect sense that, you know, some people might be trying to buy self-esteem and importance uh, through committing these acts. Um, and then, you know, whereas others are, are suicidal and, uh, you know, there's there's sort of a, well, what difference does it make? Yeah, I wish they would just start with a suicide, though, personally. Well, you know, look, if you if you're. You know, if if you don't want to live anymore, right, there's help you can get. It's not a normal condition for the brain. Fortunately, we we do. This is one area where we can medicate while people are getting counseling and help them. Uh, and the the actual medications, the antidepressants actually do work. You know, now they're not a permanent solution. I don't think anybody should be on antidepressants all their life. You know, there there are other ways that you can uh you can, you know, become more optimistic and happy and fulfilled in your life. In fact, that's what I'm hoping to write my next book on is that we've collected so much data that, you know, I'm interested in, you know, wh- how, what percent does do my odds of feeling happy and good about my life go up if I choose A over B? And it turns out we, we have a lot of that data available. It just isn't out there. So the choices you make are either going to, you know, land you in a cul-de-sac or it's going to make you a pretty happy old person, vital and happy and loved and connected and, uh, and, and enjoying your life. We've studied human beings enough to know what the key building blocks are. And maybe we need to kind of, you know, focus on that instead of so much about, you know, uh, fame and money and, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, I don't mean to sound idealistic. I, I, you know, I had to pay rent from the day I got out of college. (laughs) I didn't even get through college. So there you go. All right. So pull us out. Let's finish up on a high note. I believe that technology will get us out of the current jam we're in. I believe that we, you know, it's going to be very hard for political leaders to uh, cover up and conceal facts anymore because everybody's cell phone is a is a camera and a, is a video camera and uh, and we're all we've all turned ourselves into reporters. So I think that there's no more hiding anything. There's no more concealing anything. And I think we'll be able to tell facts from unproven beliefs in the future 
because of artificial intelligence being made accessible to the person on the street. So I'm very optimistic that, you know, technology will fix the things that are wrong with society today. Yes, there's a downside to some of the technology, but as robotics and AI powered robotics like Sophia come uh, into fruition, I think that we will be able to be a more rational society uh, as a whole. Can't say about the birth rates because it's too early to tell. You know, I'm an evolutionary biologist by training. And so when I look at trends, I look at million year trends, not what happened in the last three years. I mean, that's not really that interesting to me. Yeah, but if you look at like the last 30 years. Well, even so, those, you know, the highs and the lows and whatever seems like it's, you know, today's panic uh, tends to get neutralized over longer periods of time. It's kind of like investing in the stock market. You know, you know, those people that stick their money in the Dow Jones uh, industrial and and just keep it there for 35 and 50 years, they do fine. It's the people that are doing the trading every day <laughs> that have problems. <laughs> Very true. Now, when does your next book come out? I'm uh, I'm taking my time on this. I I probably think maybe sometime at the end of next year. I'm I'm really what I, one of the things I I'm really enjoying is I I really had to work hard and put myself under a lot of pressure on the first two books. And I've discovered one of the things that makes me very happy is taking my time all the time I want. It's definitely a good thing. Yeah. I like to take my time eating. I like to take my time in the shower. I even like to take my time walking. I, I just I realize that that gives me such joy to be able to just slow it well, down. Well, I hope to reach at luxury someday. <laughs> and where can people find you? Uh, they can find me at my website at RebeccaCosta.com. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-C-O-S-T-A.com. Excellent. And is that the same for all social media or are the links on the site? The links are on the site. They just could click on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. We're everywhere. Well, I highly recommend everybody goes there. You have all kinds of material, TED Talks, articles, a real variety. And hey, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you. And thank you for the great job you're doing. We really enjoy your interviews. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. What do you have when you want to combine two words because you're too lazy to spit them both out? A portmanteau with Eric Hundley. Brexit, Benefer, Brangelina, Infotainment, Infomercial, and Podcast. What do these all have in common? Well, they're portmanteaus, sometimes called Frankenwords. These were first used by Lewis Carroll in Through the Looking Glass, and we are surrounded by them everywhere we look. This new show, Portmanteau, will cover a new portmanteau every episode. They'll be short and look into the history of the word of the day. These may be well-known, or they may be brand new. They may even be suggested by you. Be sure to subscribe today and join in on the fun.
Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our vision of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on, because school is now in session.